Hello, I'm Matthew Wolf, and you're listening to my podcast. This podcast is the best bit from my weekly radio show on Wizard Radio Station every Sunday from three till four. What you're listening to is taken from live radio, but this is a podcast, which means it is obviously not live. So please do not try and get in contact with any of the live details you may hear me mention throughout the show, as your messages will not be received, but you may still be charged. All of our terms and conditions for getting involved can be found on our website, www.wizardradio.co.uk. Also, as this is a podcast, some of the information we give about news stories may have been updated or changed since our broadcast went live. The information in this podcast is accurate and correct as of the time the radio show was originally broadcast, but might not now be accurate. Anyway, enjoy the podcast and don't miss the live radio show every Sunday from three till four, where you can get in touch live. Hello and welcome to the podcast. On this episode, the listeners got in touch to discuss what they think the UK government can do to improve the number of people self-isolating with the coronavirus. This came after it was revealed that an extremely low percentage of people are actually isolating when asked to by the NHS app. We discussed whether the government needs to provide greater funding so that people aren't forced to go to work. And many listeners gave a variety of opinions on what the best course of action is. Later in the show, the listeners got in touch to describe what they think Joe Biden's decision to re-enter the United States into the Paris Climate Change Agreement means for the country and for climate policy as a whole. There were a variety of, of opinions about how significant this move was. I hope you enjoy. Good afternoon and welcome to Wizard Radio. I'm Matthew Wolf, and for the next hour and at time every single Sunday, I'll be discussing your thoughts on the biggest current affairs and political stories of the week gone by. We'll begin today by discussing what can be done to help lower the number of people failing to self-isolate when, re- when required. What financial incentives are needed to ensure that no one has to weigh up their financial security against the health of themselves and others. And later in the show, as Joe Biden re-entered the United States into the Paris Climate Agreement, I want to know if you feel this is significant or not. Does the agreement need to be more ambitious? Or do you actually believe, like the former President Donald Trump, that the US are better off out of the deal? Contact us. You can tweet us or DM us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at WizRadio. Text us at no extra cost, only standard network rate supply on 07807183538. Email us station at wizardradio.co.uk and all of our contact details are on our website www.wizardradio.co.uk Good afternoon. This week, a behavioural expert who advises the government informed the BBC that in England, only eight percent of people with symptoms of coronavirus were self-isolating for the full 10 days required after experiencing symptoms or testing positive. This worrying statistic perhaps forms part of an explanation 
as to why the UK now has the highest death rate in the world for COVID-19. Ministers rejected the idea of a flat £500 fee for anyone who tests positive for the virus, an idea that when leaked was ridiculed by many online due to the fact that it is £300 more than people are fined for breaking the restrictions. The government say that they have, the government say that they have, the government say that, and Downing Street say that there is already a £500 sum for those on low income who could not work from home and had to self-isolate. But this must be applied for through the government website, and there have been high rejection rates. Some may argue, therefore, that the lack of compliance is less to do with people selfishly ignoring the regulations, but rather it is the government's fault for not doing enough to help people who may otherwise be forced to avoid isolation due to their financial situation. Here is the BBC's political correspondent, Ben Wright, discussing the motive behind the plan, but also why they are unlikely to be finalised. Sure. Morning, Charlie. Uh, well, look, clearly it's imperative from the government's perspective that people go and get tested if they have symptoms of COVID and then they self-isolate uh, if they are confirmed to have the virus or they're contacted by NHS uh, test uh, track and trace. Uh, now, for people who are, on, who are on very low incomes, this is obviously something that they worry a lot about, losing income if they have to stay at home for 10 days. And the government have put financial incentives in place since September last year. Uh, there's a scheme called NHS Test and Trace Support Payment Scheme, which, if you're in work but on a low income, uh, can't work from home and receive a number of benefits you might be eligible for. Uh, there's also a top-up grant scheme that's administered by local authorities in England, uh, but the take-up of that doesn't seem to be very high at the moment. It's quite hard to get the money. So there is a review in Whitehall underway about how to make those financial incentives, that financial cushion, uh, for people who have to self-isolate better. Now, there's a proposal that we're talking about this morning is giving £500 to everybody who has to self-isolate. That's what's being reported in The Guardian. You spoke to George Eustace, the Environment Secretary, earlier on breakfast, uh, and this is what he said about the idea. We've always had the £500 support payment for those that are on certain benefits. We've always kept this under review. We know that it's uh, sometimes quite challenging to ask people to isolate for that length of time. Of course, at the moment, we're in a full lockdown anyway, so uh, while people can leave uh, to work, in many cases, people will be staying home uh, anyway. But we, we constantly keep this under review. We've, we've got to consider all sorts of policies. George Eustace saying that there is a review going underway, that these things are always looked at. Uh, the issue around financial compensation for people on low incomes having to self-isolate. I don't think, though, this is something that the government is about to do. Uh, a government source told me this morning, a senior source, said that this paper talked about in The Guardian was drawn up by officials. It's never been near the Prime Minister. Uh, and there are fears in government it could create perverse incentives. Uh, the cost to the Treasury from extending, for, for extending this to everybody who has to self-isolate would be huge. I think it's about £2 billion a month. But there's clearly a discussion underway within Whitehall about what to do. But is the government's focus in completely the wrong place? Should the money actually be going directly to employers in a separate fund to the furloughs allow employers to make sure workplaces are COVID secure. An inspection programme could ensure that no one is forced to work in unsafe workplaces and may help to preserve key areas of the economy, such as manufa the manufacturing industry, for as long as this lockdown continues. Let me know your thoughts on that, as well as any other ideas you have to try and resolve this issue. Contact us. You can tweet us or DM us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at WizRadio. 
Text us at no extra cost with only standard network rates applying on 07 807 183538. Email us station at wizardradio.co.uk and all of our website www.wizardradio.co.uk. And as one of his first acts as president of the United States, Joe Biden signed an executive order this week to re-enter the, the US into the Paris Climate Agreement. The Paris deal is the first ever legally binding treaty on climate change. It aims to limit the rise in global temperatures to within two degrees Celsius of pre-industrial levels. This is seen as a realistic goal, which will limit the catastrophe that is approaching if greenhouse gas emissions continue to be expected. However, others argue that even with this agreement, it's not strong enough. All the inconsistent weather and habitat destruction that's occurring right now is due to a one degree rise above pre-industrial levels. When we spoke to the youth climate change organization Worldward a few months ago, they said that they think the way forward is actually a reduction in carbon from the atmosphere through carbon capture technology. So I want to know what your ideas are about how to limit climate change. But more specifically, what can Joe Biden do himself to lead the nation with the highest emissions per capita into a more sustainable future? So once again, before our first break, contact us. You can tweet us or DM us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Wiz Radio. Text us at no extra cost, only standard network rates apply on 07807183538. Email us station at wizardradio.co.uk and all of our contact details are on our website, www.wizardradio.co.uk. We're going to take a break now, but then I want to hear as many of your thoughts on both the issues. But first off, we're going to be discussing the question of what can the government do to ensure that more people stick to self-isolation rules. And I'm actually going to bring up a few examples of what other countries have done just to Hear, hear what your thoughts are on them and use them as a bit of a comparison to what the UK government could do. So that's coming up after our first break of the show. It's Olivia Rodrigo, driver's licence. That was Olivia Rodrigo and driver's licence. So as I said in my introduction, the question I'm asking all of you today is what should be done to improve the number of people failing to self-isolate with COVID-19. And we've got a text in here straight away from Daniel, who says, I'm sorry, but I don't agree with the idea that people are breaking the rules because they need to. The government have put in so many systems to protect people. If you have a job that you can't do, then the furlough system is in place. There are some jobs which are impossible to do from home, and a lot of those are exceptions to the rules and can still take place. I don't know if I'm missing something major, but I therefore don't understand how people can break the rules in the name of needing to because they need to earn money when the majority of jobs have gone virtual. And for other jobs, there are exceptions to the rules. The government have literally set it up so that no employer should have to work if it breaks the rules. Well, Dan attempted to do that, but I would say that I don't think they've been completely successful. There are many, many cases where someone would not be entitled to furlough because their work's still going on. For example, if they work in the manufacturing industry and we've seen through the high rejection rates that applying for that um, money while self-isolating can be difficult and can often take longer than the period you're self-isolating for. So that's one of the potential loopholes that has led to um, people feeling the need to go into work. And especially talking about people 
in those industries such as construction or manufacturing and factories or whatever the industries that have stayed open during nearly all of the lockdowns and those people that are forced to work especially people on lower incomes because they rely on it and their job maybe can't be done from home going on a slight tangent one thing that i thought was a bit that confused me a bit was that during the first lockdown, lots of people were talking about how, oh, isn't it great that everything's just from home now and everything's different? But it kind of neglected the fact that for a lot of people, they can't do, do their job from home. And it's particularly a, almost a, a class divide that working class jobs can't be done from home, but middle class jobs can. And I thought that that was maybe neglected by quite a lot of people who were talking about how everything's just simply moved online, and how this could be permanent. So that's just something else that I'd, I, I'd bring up in response to your message there, Daniel. But more specifically, you talk about how the government are doing loads and they can, and maybe they are. But I did say before the first break that I'd reference some examples from other countries that have perhaps done done some different things and had better results. And one example that I researched um, for this show was of Portugal. And I'm going to read now from a bit of uh, some notes I took. And it said Portugal has a death rate of 94.12 deaths per 100,000 people. Even those who are just at risk of contracting COVID or having been in direct contact with a confirmed case are entitled to 100% of their basic salary for 14 days. And for those who show symptoms or who have tested positive, the same is available for up to 28 days. And the normal waiting times people are used to when claiming sick pay whilst ill have been done away with as the COVID payments kick in on day one of isolation. So as I said, that's what Portugal are doing. They've got a death rate of 94.12 deaths per 100,000 people. The UK has a death rate of 158.85 per 100,000 people, which is obviously far higher than that of Portugal. So I do think that whilst it may appear that the government are doing a lot, I think they should look at what other countries are doing, like Portugal, and think, there are lots of things they could be doing better because I think one of the biggest mistakes that governments around the world have made when responding to COVID-19 is trying to avoid losing face, trying to be stubborn and, and, and say, well, we've, we've gone this far, we have to be strong and not admit that we are wrong. But I think that it's a sign of strength to admit when you're wrong and reverse and say, hang on a minute, this is the right track to take. And I think that the government would do well to... Um, actually look at what's happening in other countries and what they've done to um, make their response to the virus more successful than ours and maybe take on board some of those policies. That's what that, that's just what I'd say to maybe take on board uh, different strategies from other countries as um, to try and benefit their response. And that's what I'd say in response to your message there, Daniel, that, yeah, I, I do think the government have done, they have done something and they've attempted to try and make it's feasible for people to work from home but the results speak for themselves and if that 18 percent statistic is correct then we do know that they're not doing well enough and they do need to improve what they're doing to ensure that that number of 18 percent rises a lot okay so yeah i think i've responded to that text um hopefully i've answered some of your questions there daniel but i'm going to move on to another one here from yasmin who says there was a hashtag I saw trending on Twitter a couple of months ago, which interested me. And it's about how freelancers have not been supported by the government during lockdown. If you're a freelancer, 
there are probably not a lot of projects going on at the moment for you to get paid to, to participate in. And you don't have an employer to pay you furlough money or for, a cons or for a consistent salary. So you're in a grey spot. Those people will end up needing to break the lockdown rules because when a project comes up, when there's a bit of money for them to earn, obviously they're going to try and get that money because it's the only money they're being offered. The government are ignoring a lot of people who need their support. But Yasmin, I'd just like to say thank you for bringing something up, which is very, very important. The idea of freelancers and self-employed people and how they've perhaps been left in the dirt a bit. And the government would say that the furlough scheme, by helping business owners, helps people who are self-employed. It takes the burden off them. For um, It removes the burden of paying their, their employees' salaries whilst their company's not making any money. But what it doesn't do is account for people that don't necessarily run their own business, but are just working for themselves freelancing. Like you said, um, freelance journalists, uh, people in the creative industries, especially uh, music producers, etc. So many more people in that industry, uh, artists, all of these different people. And while some of those jobs can be done virtually, many of them can't. And many of them require meeting a client and finding out what they want. And if the government aren't recognizing what those people are in need of they can't really turn around and say these people are terrible for going against the rules when those people need to make a living and yes of course everyone needs to follow the rules there's perhaps nothing more important but this has been going on for almost a year now and if people are not being supported they need to make money to in order to survive and maybe the government need to step up and say well if we want that 18 percent to be higher we need to do more to make sure people in this grey area, as you said there, Yasmin, are not forgotten and they need to remove that grey area. So, yeah, thanks for um, bringing that up, Yasmin. I think it's a really, really interesting point um, and something that the government, if they're listening, they're definitely not, but if some of the government are listening, um, they should definitely take on board. So, yeah, thanks again in touch there, Yasmin. I'm going to move on to another text here from Rowan, who says, the one issue I have with the idea of being paid £500 if you catch the virus is that it kind of encourages people to catch the virus. If it's a flat, a flat £500 for people who catch the virus to help them, then someone who is very low risk, who is unlikely to die from it, might actually become more careless because they then get £500 cash from the government and get to do nothing at home for two weeks. I'm in favour of there being more support if you can't work due to lockdown or if you catch the virus, but it needs to be a smarter idea than the government's original flat amount of money idea. Well, Rowan, that's a very interesting point, but I would like to say that when I was researching this show, I wrote about the £500. Halfway through researching it, the government came out and said, as we heard in the clip I played, um, that they were not considering that idea, that it was a leaked document from, I think, the Department of Health, and it did never got near the Prime Minister's desk. So they would say that it's not an idea that they support and it's not going to happen. I think that the government definitely are considering ways to increase the number of people self-isolating but the 500 pound flat fee for the reasons you suggested there is not a good idea people would be more careless wanting the free 500 pounds and like i said in the introduction the fact that it's the 500 pounds is 300 more than the fine for breaking lockdown we saw i'm sure loads of you saw um those memes online of people just saying that they're going to host house parties and take the 300 pound profit I mean, obviously that was tongue in cheek and people shouldn't do that. But it kind of just illustrated how nonsensical the idea of a flat 500p 
500p, a flat 500 pound um, payment to people suffering from COVID was. What I think and what I hope the government are considering to do, what I think would be better is instead of a flat 500p, I said it again, a flat 500 pound payment, what would be better would be to test people on low income. And the government have got access through tax records to uh, how much every person who has a national insurance number is earning. So the government could very, very easily, if someone tests positive, link it to how much they're earning. And if they're earning under a certain amount, then they're entitled to an amount of money. And it could be on a scale. So that if you're earning the larger amount of money, you get paid less or something like that. And that way the government could save more money, but also ensure that more people are self-isolating and make the whole thing more effective. But as well as having kind of a, a scale based on how much people earn, government can work with businesses, especially big businesses that run the industries that are still open during lockdown, like the manufacturing sector and um, in like big industrial businesses. I think the government can work with them to ensure that they give those big companies enough money to make sure that they're compensated for when their employers have to self-isolate. So that their employers don't feel that there's a, a trade-off between spreading the virus or losing out on money that they need to survive. So that would just be my suggestion. But yeah, thanks for your text there, Ryan. I'm going to move on though to one from Martha. And she's got in touch to say that clearly the idea of punishing people who break the rules isn't working. We've all seen videos online of people breaking the rules, getting fined £200 or businesses getting fined thousands of pounds. Yet people keep breaking the rules. It's a bit like with crime. Everyone sees the punishments, but people still commit the crimes because most usually they need to in order to survive. If you run a nail shop, for example, or you're a hairdresser and you have no support, you usually get paid in cash. So there are very little tax records for you. Then you will sneak around and try to get businesses to get business and get paid. The government needs to be handing out more money, not punishing people more for breaking the rules when they have no real choice. Well, Martha, you've raised a really interesting point there about the role of um, small businesses in all of this. And um, one thing that I've seen that's been going on in America is a sports media company called Barstool Sports. I'm not sure if anyone listening's heard of it. They created the Barstool Fund, which is a maybe a charity, a, a, a basically a fund that people who um, can, who subscribe to Barstool, who are fans of Barstool, can pay into, and that money gets handed out to local businesses, to local small businesses. Because in America, what businesses are being provided with is far less than we're seeing here. But there's still a problem with small businesses here. And you raise the idea of um, you talk about specifically um, nail salons and people that are paid in cash. And I think you're right that particularly businesses like that, hairdressers, etc., it's a real significant issue that they're not being provided the compensation that they need. And in America, that's led to charity stepping in. And I don't think we've seen anything on as big a scale as that over here. But I do think that the government need to step up and at least produce a criteria that people can apply to in order to receive some funding because so many small businesses that people have worked really, really hard to um, provide for and to make their lives are now going under. And it, it's, it's a sad, it's a sad thing to, to happen in any, in any situation. But the fact that it's happening to so many businesses because of this pandemic is really just tragic because not just um, for the benefit that it gives the economy, 
but also through um, what it actually means on a personal level to the people that have built these businesses up um, from the ground in order to create something they're proud of and something that matters to the community. Because we know that we've we've spoken about this many times on the show that business, just like sports teams are not just things to make money. They're things that are part of the community and really do um, matter to people on a social level. And I think that's something the government perhaps didn't consider enough when doling out their funding. Because maybe we're being too harsh because there is a lot there's many many interest groups that are suffering in this pandemic but I do feel that self-employed people and small businesses are one of those interest groups that are perhaps being um, that are perhaps being left out of the conversation and I think that's kind of a good place to take another break the idea that um, some people are being neglected and I think that if you want to get in touch to to disagree with that to say that you actually think I'm not doing all they can all they can feel free to get in touch but also if you want to raise another industry or um, bring up the idea of another heard from a text earlier, another grey area that you feel the government are neglecting, get in touch and tell me what that is. What that is. I want to know what that grey area is. I want to know why you think they're being neglected. And I also want to know what you think the government can do to ensure that those people aren't left out in the future. So, yeah, continue to get in touch on the number 07807 we're going to take our second break of the show now. The song on now is is um, Power Salu Energy featuring Mahalia. Welcome back to Wizard Radio. I'm Matthew Wolf, and you're joining us while we're discussing the question of what should be done to encourage more people to follow the UK's COVID-19 rules. And this follows the, the, the story that broke this week, that apparently only 18% of people that are meant to be self-isolating are doing so for the full 10 days required. So that's quite a worrying statistic. And the government responded by um, coming up with many ideas that weren't meant to be published. They were leaked. Uh, one of them's already been shot down by the government as something that will not be happening. That was the idea that um, everyone would, would receive a flat £500 uh, payment by the government when testing positive for, for COVID-19 and um, that's been rejected by the government but I want to know from all of you what you think the government should be doing and I've got a text in here from who says I don't think we're about to see mass government handouts this is the Conservative Party after all things like furlough and other support is already a lot for them but they can reason it I do not think they're ever going to actually run with a straight up handout system. I think there needs to be case-by-case judgment happening here, done on a council-by-council basis. You should be able to phone up your local council, tell them about your situation, and then work out the right support to make sure you don't need to break the rules. Where have local councils been in all of these lockdowns? The people that we literally elect have been faceless in the past year, when there are so many complicated individual cases that they should be helping out with. Well, Jason, I just want to start by picking up on the idea, the, the point councils, because I would say that councils have had it tough. There was a story that broke this week about how a large proportion of councils in the UK are bankrupt and um, don't have any money to spend. And I think that that's largely due to the pandemic. But I also think that we can't really blame it on them for um, for not doing enough. I honestly think that 
with something like COVID-19 that affects the entire country and is such a broad, broad issue, I don't think it's really council's responsibility. I think the government can delegate some things to the councils, but I think big payments like um, that for people who are self-isolating should be done by the government themselves on a wide scale that that reaches everyone. They should be responsible for it. And I think, to be fair to the government, that's what's happened so far. That's what they've been doing. They have been um, doing it. They haven't been delegating every, everything to councils. They've been doing stuff on quite a large scale. We've seen with the large vaccine, we've seen with the, the large testing schemes. And to be fair to the government, they have tried to move on a national scale and tried to pool resources as much as possible. But getting back more closely to your message, the idea that a Conservative government would never authorise the idea of handouts. And you you raise the issue yourself that um, what they've done already with the furlough scheme and all the other benefits to people suffering from COVID-19 is already far, far out of the Conservative Party's textbook. It, it's not like them. It's not what we're used to seeing from the Conservative Party. And um, I would just like to say that maybe they're saying we've gone this far. Why not do a bit more? Maybe they're throwing their ideologies out the window and thinking we want what's best for the country now. They're being pragmatic or maybe not. Maybe they did all of this through gritted teeth and they're going to put draw the line and say no further. Now. We don't know. We don't have Boris Johnson here to ask uh, his opinion. <laughs> Boris Johnson isn't here for me to ask him. So obviously we don't know exactly what they're thinking. Only time will tell whether they're going to be more generous with the payments or not. As I said, it does seem that the government have been generous with what they spent. But as I said, with the example of Portugal, other countries have been far more generous, paying full salary for 14 days, 28 if tested positive. And I think that that generous incentive isn't just going to encourage more people to self-isolate. But what I think it does is actually create a sense of goodwill about the government, a sense of, hang on a minute, they're looking out for me, they care about me. And while some people will, yes, they will exploit it and take advantage of it for money, many people say, the government are looking out for us, I'm going to keep to the rules and protect my fellow citizens. And I think that that kind of sense of goodwill is something the government really could have fostered but haven't. And I think that the consequences of that um, may be seen in the next few months as... Um, cases continue to rise. Obviously, we hope not. Maybe maybe the, the consequences have already been seen to the worst, but we do know that with the highest death rate in the world, the UK has definitely seen some severe consequences. And I think a time will come as the vaccines rolled out, the, the question will be less about what we can do, but more the questions may turn more to an inquiry about what we could have done better. And in some cases, they already have. But maybe I've gone off on a bit of a tangent there, Jason, but I do think that I agree with you that the government may not be so far in support of um, a direct payment scheme like the one we heard uh, mentioned in the news this week. So, yeah, thanks again in touch there, Jason. But I'm going to move on to another one here from George. He says, this might be safe, but I do not think this is about people not self-isolating because they can't. It's people not self-isolating because they don't want to. Obviously, there are some people who can't isolate for financial reasons, but that will be the minority. If only 18% of people are self-isolating for the full period, that is because they're fed up and don't want to follow the rules. People know the rules and they're, the, people know the rules. There is no excuse to not follow the rules, especially if you are meant to be self-isolating. 
but they aren't regardless. I agree that more support from the government is always better, but I don't think that's the reason why the stats are the way they are. Well, George, that's a very, very interesting text, and I think one that a lot of people were actually thinking um, when listening. And I think that it, it, you raised the issue that I came across when researching this show of where should the blame for this high infection rate and the low self-isolation rate, where should it go? Should the blame be on the people? Is it, is it the people's fault for not sticking to the rule? Is it about time that people stop saying, oh, it's the government's fault, it's the government's fault, and take some personal responsibility and say, it's my fault. I'm not doing enough. I could do better. And instead of blaming someone else, take personal responsibility. That's what many conservatives would actually say. But others would say that by blaming the public, the government deflecting responsibility from themselves and actually negating the fact that they have a serious, serious, they've had serious, serious issues with the way they've handled the pandemic. For example, one person I saw online this week who was talking about how um, he talking about how he doesn't think it's the people's fault, how he thinks that the government are merely deflecting their responsibility. He said that people are being forced into unsafe workplaces and that um, the government needs to do more to protect people in those workplaces. That's an issue we spoke about when responding to earlier messages and I think refers specifically to industries such as construction and manufacturing. And um, significant issue, the idea that for a lot of cases, the government needs to do more to safeguard people in their places of work and to not um, pass off responsibility for the alarming and tragic scenes and statistics we're seeing right now in our hospitals. But I do think that it isn't all one way. I do think that a lot of people need to look at themselves and say, are we doing the absolute most to make sure that we don't spread the virus to many people? I think that there was an event broken up this week, a wedding in which 200 people were present and those super spreader events that were inside with lots and lots of people, I think make most of the public angry, not just because they're struggling by keeping the rules, but also because they've missed, they've missed their own things. And it, 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 I'll say that again, as well as creating a sense of anger that they've missed on their own, that they've missed out on their things and they've suffered, but other people aren't. I think it also creates a sense that if they're not following the rules, why should I? And we, we spoke about this loads and loads during the first lockdown way back in April and May when I took over the show about the idea that one or two people breaking lockdown rules can lead to a cascade of other people thinking, I don't have to either. And I think that um, that's possibly the most damaging thing of all. And yeah, I, I spoke for quite a lot on your message there, George, but I'm going to move on now to another one here from Robbie, who's going to be the final message of this topic and Robbie says the government should be handing out more support if you need to self-isolate whether it is going to, going to cause more people to self-isolate or not all of the money the government has is our money paid by the public's taxes it's not their money in times of need like the times we're having living in now the more tax money they can give back to the people to help normal people live their lives safely the more goodwill there will be and I think will also lead to more people following the rules because they will be le living better lives safely. The government is being stingy with its money that isn't even their own. What's up with that? Well, Robbie, it's interesting what you say there, but I do have to say that you're kind of wrong with some of what you're saying. The government, I'm not sure if this is the right word for it, um, but I think there's a deficit in the government. The government um, received less money from taxes and 
um, VAT and all these different things, they receive less money from the public than they spend. And that's in a normal year, a normal year without COVID-19. So the money that the government have to spend isn't all our money. Our money makes up a, a small uh, percentage of that. Most of what the government spend is borrowed from the Bank of England and other central banks. And I, I'd just like to um, raise that point because it, it, I think it needed to be said that you had a, a slight misunderstanding. But I do support your sentiment, the idea that the government are voted in by us. It's their role to provide um, basic services for the people they represent, the people who vote for them. And I think that in, in a time of great need, while they have done a lot, looking at other examples of other countries, they could be doing more. And I think that's a good place to really sum up that topic and end it right there. We'll be talking about the US's decision to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement after the break. But right now we're getting our third and final song of the hour on. It's Young T and Bugsy, New Shape. Welcome back to Wizard Radio. That was Young T and Bugsy, New Shape. So we're moving on to our second topic of the hour now. The question I ask you at the start of the show is the question of, is the United States decision to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement significant or not? And we've got a text in straight away from Katie, who says, I do not think that the United States decision to rejoin Paris is in itself that big of a deal, because the climate agreement doesn't actually hold any countries to account if they don't achieve the targets. It's literally just them saying, we're going to try our best. But it's a sign of where Joe Biden's priorities are and how he wants to help set the US up for a more. If you follow the at POTUS account on Instagram, that's the president of the United States, the official account. The second post that Joe Biden put on the Instagram page after a picture of his face with the caption, let's get to work, was the announcement that America has rejoined the Paris deal. It was his first proper announcement. If that isn't a sign of how seriously Biden is taking the climate crisis, I don't know what is. Well, Katie, I hadn't noticed that post, but it is significant. Um, we know that social media has been used by politicians for many, many years now to really put forward their priorities. And Donald Trump was one of the biggest proponents of that. He used Twitter to put out his personal manifesto almost. And the fact that Joe Biden did this as his first post does illustrate that it's a priority for him. But going back to what you said at the start of your message, the idea that um, the climate agreement isn't isn't binding. I think that's a really, really good point and one I perhaps should have mentioned when introducing the topic. There are no enforcement mechanisms or penalties in place if states don't achieve their targets. And perhaps even more worrying for um, people who want to see action against climate change is the fact that states can set their own targets for cutting emissions, which obviously due to the fact that cutting emissions, especially for developing countries, will come at a cost of economic growth, these targets are likely to be below what is required to stop the rise in temperature um, from going above two degrees Celsius. So there are lots of issues with the deal, but I think the cancelling the building of the Yellowstone oil pipeline in his first week in office does demonstrate it's a priority for him. But I think the next four years of his presidency will really be pivotal because four years from now, the state of the climate will be different. And if things continue as they are, it will be worse. And I think that 
drastic action is needed to ensure that um, to ensure that um, people are really set on the right path um, to to try and counter the crisis that we're in now. And I think that's really really important. And by 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 um, doing all these things in his first week and by having it as his first Instagram post and all of this, Biden is at least off to a good start in signifying that unlike Trump, climate change is an important issue to him. So yeah. Thanks for getting in touch there, Katie. We've got another one here from Will who says this is a huge deal. Obviously, it's important that every country plays their role in reducing global emissions. But the countries that release the most emissions have a greater responsibility than others. In the UK, we have done a lot, but we only reduce 1% of all global carbon. We only pr produce, I think that's meant to say, 1% of all global carbon emissions. The United States are the second biggest emitter after China. The US releases 15% of all global carbon emissions. If Joe Biden puts policies in place that help the US to actually meet those targets, and then the leadership after Biden also follow those policies, then this could potentially save the planet. It's unlikely that China is going to follow any such rules, but the US reducing their emissions significantly would make a big change. Well, Will, I share part of your optimism. Like you said, the US are a huge emitter, the second biggest in the world. But one of the reasons that it's been so hard previously to come to climate agreements is that countries argue that the other one's doing worse. They say, well, you produce more emissions than us, so you need stricter targets. And the US have said to China in the past, you're a bigger emitter than us, so you need to slow down on development and slow down on the production of coal power plants because you produce more emissions than us. But China could equally respond by saying that the US produces almost double the amount of, of carbon dioxide emissions per capita. It just so happens that there's over a billion people living in China, that is, which is one of the, the, the big reasons as to why they produce uh, so much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So it is all relative, the amount produced, and that's perhaps why there's been so many disagreements in the past. But what is so significant about this deal is that the US and China are both signed up to it. Obviously, the US left for four years with Trump, but they're now re-signed to it. And the two biggest emitters are signed to it. You say that you don't think China will keep to it. And many people do agree with you. There's there's no legally binding mechanisms to make sure people do keep to this. But um, China have signed up to it, which does show intent at least. And um, I think that is hopeful, at least, that they've signed up to it. And the two biggest emitters are on side. And I do think that um, once a big nation like China or the United States takes drastic actions towards this, I think it will set precedent, set an example for other, other, other countries. But one of the most important things that we do need to remember is that some of the countries that are producing the most emissions are countries that are still developing. And they've said that, we, yes, we will reduce our emissions, but we're developing first. And um, it's just that the thought that are they going to develop quickly enough for there still to be time for emissions to be reduced once they are developed or will it come too late? And I think that's a really significant issue. And I think that one of the things we need to remember to counter that is that development should not come at the cost of the environment. There needs to be sustainable development. Whether countries are willing to take that on is another question, but that's just what I think. So I'm going to move on now to another text from Beth. And Beth's going to have the final message of the show. And she says... This is significant, and I don't want to be a downer, but it's only significant if the leaders after Biden follow in his footsteps. Climate change is such a political issue in the United States that I don't have much faith that any real change is going to happen. 
Joe Biden has already said that he's unlikely to run again in 2024. So whichever president comes after him, they also need to follow the policies. And every president afterwards, until 2050 at least, but ideally for the rest of human history, need to work on reducing emissions. So this is a really good sign, but I don't think we should be celebrating just because Biden signed a deal. Well, Beth, I think you very successfully up the whole issue. This is a long-term politics and political differences should not get in the way of the long-term aim of the deal. The long-term aim is to protect the world, but also to protect, protect humans, because we know that climate change continues at the current rate and weather patterns become even more unpredictable. It will be very difficult for humans to continue living in the way we are right now. And I think that the bigger picture is what needs to be held by every decision maker around the world. The bigger picture for future generations to try and preserve preserve the planet as it is. And I think that's a really, really nice way to kind of um, end this show with a really succinct summary of um, what's happened. But the idea that this isn't a short-term issue, it's a very long term to continue to hold that in mind. So yeah, thanks for getting in touch there. Um, I just want to say that if you miss any of this show, it will be available for the next seven days on our website, www.wizardradio.co.uk forward slash repeat. And also, some really good news is that this show will be available on all major streaming platforms, on Apple, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on all of, the, all of the places you get your podcasts from. It will go out on Monday. All you have to do is search Matthew Wolf, and um, this will come up, and you can listen to it there. It will really help the show out if you listen there. Um, I'd like to say thanks to everyone for listening uh, this hour. Up next is Madeleine Molly, but first, time for the news and the weather. <laughs>